Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion of The Book of Boba Fett, Episode 2, The Tribes of Tatooine. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars nerd expert Brian Young. Just thrilled to be alive. <laughs> How you doing, Brian? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm ready to I'm ready to do this. <laughs> okay. Before, uh, as you know, with each of these episodes, it's in four segments. We get to your feedback and stuff that we learned since last week's episode. We go into our brief reactions, then into the breakdown and into the speculation. So we'll start things off with the feedback. You can always write us at peter at slash uh, Leave you know your speculation, your observations, things that we might have missed. Uh, that you saw that we didn't, uh, please you know send them in. Um, but we also in the section like to to read some stuff that we learned over the last seven days. On last week's episode, uh, it was either you or me, Brian, that was speculating that when they were walking through Mosespa, there was like these robot dog creature things, and yeah, we were speculating that they were those Boston Dynamic. Uh, robot dogs and uh that company actually tweeted and it was so we were right pat in the back to whoever said it i don't remember which one of us it was but one of us did um the other thing that we learned in the last week is the rodian prisoner from last week was actually voiced by sam witwer who has a history with star wars stuff right uh i think that's putting it mildly he's been around <laughs> For a long time, he was the voice of Starkiller and the voice Unleashed. He went on to voice Maul on... Well, first he voiced Sun on Mortis and then Maul on the Clone Wars. 
and he has been doing advanced dialogue recording or additional dialogue recording in most of the features lately. Uh, he was a lot of the stormtroopers you heard through the, the sequel <laughs> trilogy. And so seeing him show up in this way, just to uh, clarify so that we don't get emails about this. Uh, it's Rodian. What did I say? You keep saying Rodian. Oh my God. So yeah, it's a small thing, but I just, you know, just to avoid okay. the head, the head. Rodian. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Rodian. The thing is, I, I actually never talk about them. I only read about them. So I feel like... My, my thing is, is you can't really criticize Star Wars pronunciation because it's so all over the map, even inside Star Wars, whether that's Han <laughs> or Han or Leia or Leia. Yeah, for like, sure. Everything's got a couple of different ways of saying it. Yeah. Uh, last week... We talked about the opening with Jabba's Palace, the empty shot there. And Brian, you speculated that that was actually a repurposed shot from Return of the Jedi. And someone actually tweeted that that is, that that shot uh, in the hallway, 30 seconds, 37 seconds into chapter one is a zoomed still frame of Luke's entrance into Jabba's Palace with smoke added in a pan across the frame. So it it looked so accurate. I couldn't imagine it being otherwise. Yeah. Uh, Nathan C wrote in, he said, remember in chapter nine of the Mandalorian when Cobb Vanth, Timothy Oliphant's character had a, had drunk that coconut looking thing. I think that's it. I know that Cobb Vanth made it look disgusting. Whereas Bubba Fett drank it like normal water. Uh, Bobo was probably desperate for water. So, yeah, last week we 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 asked about those things that they were digging up. The um, what do they call them in this? Black melons. Black, black melons. Yeah. So we finally have a name, and I it, yeah. So it was in the Mandalorian, and they also say in this week's episode that it it's a milk. It's not a it's not a water in there. It's a milk. So uh, th- there there is there is uh, Brian, have you found out is, is there any other previous mention of that or is that the first time? I think it's I, I haven't dug too deeply into that, but I do think the Mandalorian and the Tuscans there is sort of the first use of them in on that show. I wanted to point this out. Someone named Baz McAllister on Twitter pointed out that out of the top build cast on the show, of uh five in the first episode the youngest is 47 years old that being matt berry the rest are late 50s early 60s and two are non-american born people of color so i thought that was interesting for a disney show to have such a uh a diverse older cast (laughs) really quick their first appearance was actually the star wars comic book uh in 2015 but oh wow uh, They've been used since then, so it's a comic. It's a comic thing that got moved into the Mandalorian, and I think this episode proves that if John Favreau, Favreau is anything, it's a reader of the comics. <laughs> or yeah, someone from the story group being like, he's like, I, I need them to drink something, and we're like, oh, use this thing from the comic. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's. Uh, we got another email from Alexandria. Wait, Alexandria from California. And they said, so in the scene in the street, when Boba and Fennec are surrounded by the people with the shields, Boba and Fennec are getting pretty pretty heavily beat up until the Gamorrean guards show up. I kept wondering in the scene, why doesn't Boba use his jetpack to get out of the ring of shields? Do you think there's any reason for this? The last time he used his jetpack, it didn't go very well for him. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, it might might not be working properly. Um, well, Cobb Vanth did repair it, and he did use it in the Mandalorian. Yeah. Oh yeah. My yeah. the only other thing I could think of is that maybe the blast of the jetpack is like too much that he was worried about maybe like hurting Fennec Shand, but then he also does fire off one of his like rockets in the middle of that shield ring, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I think he's just gun shy for it because of what happened with Han or Han. <laughs> uh, your Han is my Han. I don't know. You know, last week's episode, when they were entering the sanctuary, I think we were all so excited by the return of um, uh, Max Rebo. Sorry, <laughs> that's blanking out there. Max Rebo and the appearance of the Rex droid. That I didn't realize that the the drummer in the band, that's the droid, actually has like a top hat on on the top of his head, and I think that's so cool. And um, I saw it's someone a high hat. Uh, or high hat. Sorry. Uh... I hat. Uh, I, I saw someone on Twitter theorize that the droid's name is DRMR. And I like that. Let's make it canon. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, how did uh, a lot of people are wondering how did Bib Fortuna and Max Rebo and everybody escape the destruction at, of Jabba's barge? And Pablo Hildago commented on Twitter. He said, "There's always been a certain amount of time between the first deck gun blast and the final exposed explosion. Otherwise, the good guys wouldn't have escaped either." In the 1990s EU's book, uh, Expanded Universe books, there's plenty of survivors, including Rebo, Bostic, uh, Bib Fortuna. And uh, so it's not a new idea. I figured second those shutters close on Jabba's lounge, everybody runs screaming, leaving Leia to strangle him. So I, 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 I didn't even question that at all. Did you guys question it? Oh, no. I mean, I like... That's basically kind of I I had figured there was maybe like a skiff or two that like made off as soon as things started to get nasty and I'm sure any number of people could have made it off by by doing that you know I mean not everyone's gonna stay there and get caught up in in a fight if they don't need to especially you know when they're just the band so uh, yeah that's basically just what what I thought I I questioned it a little harder but Pablo's <laughs> answer is thoroughly acceptable to me. Yeah, uh, he's the voice of reason here. My favorite was someone tweeted a picture, a still frame from Return of the Jedi, which was like, oh, you just didn't notice that and it like had a uh, Max Rebo like flying away from the barge as it was crashing. I thought that was funny. Anyways, um, a bunch of readers, Jacob, Anders and David, all from Sweden, wrote in because last week I mentioned that the theme song for the book of Boba Fett uh, sounded like a Swedish song. And they all wrote in saying that Ludwig, uh, who is uh, Swedish, uh, was probably heavily inspired by a song called the Mattis and the Borka song. It's from a 1984 Swedish children's fantasy movie, uh, Ronia the Robber's Daughter. And this is based on a book. It's a it's a famous Swedish movie that I've never seen. But I'm going to link in the show notes a clip of that song from that movie. And Slashlam actually wrote this up because it's very, very, very similar. So it, it seems like it's very um, – as someone growing up in the 80s in, in, over there, I'm sure this posed an inspiration. I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we're going to have to ask him once we get – 
a chance to interview him, but um, it, it's interesting. And I, I wanted to ask you guys, so now that you've had a week with this song, because I when when it started out, I, I was like not sure. But now after, at the end of this episode, like I feel like I almost like this more than the Mandalorian theme song. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far because <laughs> it's not remarkably dissimilar. And I don't There's just something I think I like the Mandalorian more. That's a little bit more, uh, quietly intimidating as opposed to being like a, a, you know, a more firm march, I guess you could say. Yeah. Brian, any thoughts? On I, this still, theme? I still think it really fits the tone of the show. It fits as it, as you cut to the credits every time it fits where they're, ending every time in a in a really in a way that's not jarring to me so um, yeah i I think i was just like not into the vocals at first but now i'm totally into it yeah it's not it's not bad and who knew they they were telling us it was the huts all along in the the theme song we should just listen to that part of the theme song and we would have known that they were coming (laughs) uh chris writes in uh, would have been cool if a, the stormtrooper in the Sarlacc pet was a clone trooper, half devoured for decades, but still alive. Boba takes the clone's helmet to get get access to his gear, looks into his eyes, and finishes him, him, him off with the mercy kill. I think they're holding back on him meeting a clone, right? Because like that that has to be like a big deal, him meeting himself. If if they do do that, which I'm hoping that they do. Um, yeah, they wouldn't blow that in a cameo in the Sarlacc. I think they would have to be holding it back and they're going to have to make it special. They're not going to make it just any clone. They're going to make it a clone we recognize. It's going to be Rex or it's going to be Cody or it's going to be a, I mean, Cody would be a really great clone for it because we don't really have any canon wrap up for Cody. Um, you know, it could be, it could be any clone, but I think it's going to be one that we know. Yeah. I want to know how that stormtrooper ended up in the Sarlacc pit. I need the comic book, you know, storyline explaining how it got all the way out there in the middle of the Dune Sea, Brian. He was searching for a pair of droids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some people were complaining last week. There was that flashback to Boba Fett picking up his father, Jango Fett's helmet. And you could clearly see through the opening of the helmet, the, uh, the visor you could see it was empty inside and they're like there, wouldn't there be a decapitated head in there and daniel logan the actor who played young bubba fett actually pointed on twitter that you can actually he actually posted the uh the screenshots of this you can actually see a shadow of what would be the decapitated head in the movie flying away from the helmet as it, it flies through there so, so yeah this that. is yeah. this is something that like was discussed at the time because i remember people uh, criticizing being like, why doesn't Jango Fett's head fall out of the helmet if Boba Fett is holding it like that? And uh, I don't, I forget who provided the answer at the time when it happened, but you, yeah, you can definitely see the the shadow of the head very quickly falling away from the helmet after Mace Windu slices his head off. Yeah, um, it's a family movie, of course it does. <laughs> I also want to point out the, this observation from Joseph Scrimshaw uh, from Force Center that was pointed out to me. And he pointed out that the three main Tuscan Raiders in chapter one are a young boy, the warrior and the leader, two roles, which Boba Fett has played in his life. 
and critically a role that he wants to have in the future. And the, the leader sips the water, which is everything on this planet. It's life. It's the economy. It's power. And uh, for the leader to ch- choose to give or take and and uh, Boba seems inspired to become a leader. I, I don't know. I, I thought that was an interesting reader uh, reading of the Tuscan Raider storyline from chapter one. What do you think of that, Brian? No, I think that's really astute. And, and uh, Joseph Scrimshaw does really good analysis uh, and has has for a, a long time. I would I would say check his stuff out and follow him. Um, but I think he's he's absolutely right. I was thinking back on the Tuscan camp that he gets to, and we don't see a lot of women there. And uh, the women were, were pretty canonically um, introduced in Attack of the Clones, and they all sort of had the the uh, um, the babies and the children on them and whatnot. This feels like a much smaller clan or a much smaller tribe or a much smaller group. And as I watched them, I didn't see anyone like that who was more dedicated to, to nurturing this this felt more to me much like a a, a war party um and uh i think having the young trained uh you know the young warrior the middle-aged warrior and the chieftain uh all three of those represented in this party as a reflection for boba fett is likely what they were going for I, I do have to mention that the warrior here is actually not only played by a female, she's played by uh, Joanna Bennett, but the the audio description track actually says that the warrior is female. So it doesn't look like the females we've seen um, from Tuscan Raiders before, but that character, uh, the chief yeah. is male and the, the kid is male, but she is female. But- you're not seeing any of the nurturing sort of characters, the mothers and things like that, which is, this is very much the, a rating sort of tribe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they they say later in the episode that the, that the different tribes of Tatooine kind of adopted differently. Some of them became more vicious and others chose to hide. So uh, we can talk about that when we get to there. Um, we have one last thing in feedback. I know this is a lot of feedback. Uh, does the Boba Fett show have a Boba Fett problem? There's an article written on SlashFilm.com from Eric Vespi, who's a very smart guy. I, I love reading his work um, for many years before I even started writing about movies when he was over at Ain't It Cool News. Um, and basically, you know, I'm going to read a, a, a piece of this, but ba- ba- the basic gist of this is He's wondering what Boba Fett's arc is for the series because he says, quote, I absolutely love that Boba Fett isn't coming into his new role as crime boss, just slaughtering everybody left and right. But I'm kind of perplexed as to why he was portrayed as being so kindhearted in these post Return of the Jedi flashbacks. Even Mando has to go from ruthless bounty hunter, only interested in upgrading his armor to big hearted adopted daddy for Baby Yoda. That's a significant arc. What is Boba Fett's arc going to be? He goes from a guy who doesn't want to fight to a guy who doesn't want to fight. The only thing I see happening that gives Fett any kind of growth is at all is the darker path 
that I expect to see from from a Disney Plus Star Wars show. It feels like the only way the character changes at all is if he gets more ruthless, not more kind. That's the Mike, Michael Corleone from The Godfather route or Walter White from Breaking Bad path. Would Disney go for that? I doubt it, but who knows? So I want to bring that up because, Brian, I feel like you might have some opinion on this. Yeah, I've got an opinion on everything Eric writes. I really, he's a terrific writer and 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 uh, I really like his stuff. And I have sort of some similar concerns and I feel like Boba Fett has to have an arc if he's static through the course of this show. Um, it's going to be a problem and it's going to leave audiences going, well, that was fine. They might not realize that Boba Fett not having an arc is part of the reason that they, they think it's just fine. But he definitely needs somewhere to go. And maybe the kinder route is where he's going. Uh, or maybe maybe Eric's right, and they are going to go more ruthless with that Michael Corleone thing. Um, I wouldn't be so sure, I wouldn't be so so easy to dismiss that Disney Plus wouldn't go somewhere a little darker with that. I mean, you look at uh, Rick McCallum and the work that he did with George Lucas uh, building the Underworld show, and they were like, it was, they thought it might have been, you know, uh, rated M for mature. And I think this might be mining some similar material to that. Um, maybe they will go with that Godfather route. Maybe they will go with that, that more ruthless vet. But one thing is for sure, if the writing on this is going to be good in the final accounting, Boba Fett has to go somewhere. Yeah. The question is, where does he, where does he have to go? Cause it, this really seems like the end of like a journey and not the beginning, but um, I don't know. I guess we're going to find, find out, but okay, let's jump into or Brad. Do you have any thoughts on this actually? Uh, no, I mean, my, my, I have the same concerns. Um, and I think, you know, it would be interesting to have them take that route where he does go back to being more of a ruthless bounty hunter. And I think there's probably plenty of things that he could encounter that might turn him to that. Um, you know, as crackpot as the theory was that was proposed last week, the return of Mace Windu could certainly be something that might set him off seeing the person who killed his father, maybe something involving uh, coming into <clears throat> uh, proximity with clone troopers and having some kind of mental breakdown because of that could result in some kind of character change as well. Um, I think there's plenty of paths that they can take, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm curious and cautiously optimistic to see what they do with with him as a character now that he's established this new uh, approach to you know his work. My 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 first thought when reading this from Eric, I'm like, could Disney go the route of making the show build up a bad guy for like Man Mando? Like, could that happen? But I feel like they're selling so much Boba Fett merchandise. Would they really have a turn like that? Like all these kids, <laughs> would, would would they, I don't know, like would they hurt? I mean, I guess he was a bad guy before and the merchandise sold fine then. And I guess Mandalorian are, already has enough bad guys to deal with at this point. So, yeah, I don't know. I, it, I mean, obviously we know that all of this is going to come together in some kind of uh, crossover in the Mandalorian verse, the whole, you know, Ahsoka show Mandalorian in book of Boba Fett. I, I just don't know how they are going to come together, but we can talk about that later. 
Okay, let's uh, let's get into our brief thoughts on this episode. I'll start things off, and I'll I'll be very brief. I loved all the exploration of the Tuscan culture. Uh, it expands the Star Wars galaxy in a rich, meaningful way. And honestly, after last week's episode, I was kind of ready for them to just jump back forward to, uh, you know, mob boss Fett and tell that storyline. And when he went into the the back to tank, I was kind of like, oh. You know, I just want to move forward with the story, but I ended up loving the whole Tuscan storyline in this episode, probably even more so than the the gangster stuff at the beginning, even though as as good as that was. Um, I do want to say that uh, I feel like this should have been that Disney should have released these two episodes as one drop on like the first week, or I almost feel like. In, Maybe they should have had the back to tank flashbacks be the first episode. So it's almost like one full episode of what we got last week and this week of the Tuscan stuff and then cut to the future. Uh, the gangster like been more linear, but I have a feeling that they're going to connect in some way. Brad, what, what did you think of this episode? Um, yeah, I, in this case, I appreciated the flashback story more. And that's, I think that's what I'm digging most about the series because everything happening in present day seems pretty straightforward criminal underworld kind of business. And even though I do have a curiosity about where that's going and how it will tie into the larger, uh, Star Wars universe, especially with the Mandalorian going forward and a presumed reunion of those characters at some point, I, I'm, I like the story they're telling here because it's, it's really this like, uh, Boba Fett meets Dances with Wolves kind of story. And uh, it's it's something that we really haven't seen much of in Star Wars. Everything has been so, uh, you know, focused on Jedi and Sith and uh, Rebels and Empire or First Order and Resistance, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, that's a big part of why I love The Mandalorian so much. But The Mandalorian also started kind of veering back into that territory because of Grogu and Ahsoka and the connection to some of these uh, larger story arcs and characters. And even though Boba Fett is a prominent Star Wars character, there's so much that you can do with him that lies outside of that arena. And I think that's why I'm enjoying this aspect of the story, even if, uh, you know, the overall arc of his character is still a little bit on questionable ground until we learn more about the show as it moves forward. Brian, your brief thoughts on this episode. Um, I mean, I, I did enjoy this episode a lot more than last week's episode. I felt like there was a lot more to sink your teeth into. Uh, there were a lot more nods to other places in the canon, and it showed us some stuff that, frankly, I was shocked and surprised, never thinking we would get to see stuff like that on screen. Um, <clears throat> I found the flashback structure a little a little weird. We get about 14 minutes in the present day, and then it cuts to a flashback through the rest of the episode. And this was almost an, uh, you know, a 50 minute episode. So it felt a little lopsided, especially after the episode last week sort of went back and forth a little bit more consistently, but emotionally the arc was, uh, correct for that. So I guess I can't complain about it too much. Um, it, it just felt a little off that like we wanted to get back to that, but never really do. Yeah, I almost wondering. I almost wonder if the editing of the first episode was altered to make it more intercut, and that it was originally like this, where it was kind of like, you know, um, 
more of like just half half. Or I mean, I guess it's not half half. It's over, like you said, uh, unbalanced. But um, yeah, I, w- I wonder if it w- if if there was some creative editing there because all you got to do is show him, you know, in the back to tank, and then <laughs> you could do the intercut thing. Yeah, and I, I really think I, I really think the climax of the flashbacks is going to show us the stories that were sort of behind the episodes of Mandalorian and catch up to the Mandalorian, right? Like they're going to bring us the Boba Fett over the course of these six episodes. They're going to deliver him to Tython. Like, why would he go to Tython? Like he's going to have to earn back all of the pieces of his identity. He's going to have to earn back the slave one. And that might be the thing that we, one of the big, uh, you know, benchmarks that we're going to see him over the course of these flashbacks. But I really feel like it's going to be, he'll get slave one back or he'll, he'll rescue Fennec and then their relationship will play out in the flashbacks and she'll be part of the flashbacks because she seems so criminally underused at this point. Um, and it will connect all those dots of the story in, in flashback. And I almost wonder if that's more of what the show is about to do. And then the ending it, for the the present is going to end up on a cliffhanger that does lead into the rest of them. Cause if we're only getting 10 or 15 minutes of that story over the course of these episodes, <laughs> that's essentially one episode of the present and everything else is the past. Um, it's probably just hiding something. Yeah. The question is, what is it hiding? I, I guess we could speculate about, speculate about that later. I do want to mention that the first episode was directed by Robert Rodriguez. This episode is directed by Steph Green. Uh, she is an Oscar and Emmy nominated director, uh, nominated for Academy Award for her 2009 short film, New Boy, directed so many TV shows, The Americans, Man in High Castle, American Crime, Bates Motel, You're the Worst, Billions, Preacher, Luke Cage, Scandal, Scandal uh, was nominated for an Emmy in 2020 for her work on Watchmen. So uh, you can definitely see that she's a, a, a quality filmmaker talent uh, by her resume and by this episode. And this episode is, again, written by John Favreau. Okay, so let's jump into the breakdown. So this starts off with... Boba Fett trying to get the captured Nightwind assassin to talk, but the assassin is unwilling to reveal who sent him, even with a blade to his neck. And he 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 does a he says a curse here. We we've heard this before, right, Brian? Yeah, uh, Ichuta is a curse that was used in Empire Strikes Back for the first time when that protocol droid comes out from around the corner surprises 3PO 3PO is like hey it's so great to see a familiar face around here and he gets greeted with that and then 3PO ends up of course getting blasted to bits it got used again in um the Mandalorian in I I want to say the first episode where somebody says Ichuta Mando and the uh subtitle for it said hey Mando and there were some people that <laughs> that wrote that wrote some articles very saying like they've robbed star Wars of its finest swear or whatever, but like they never translate the swears into the, uh, into the, 
like subtitles, right? Yeah. Like, um, like poodoo doesn't mean fodder. Poodoo means shit. <laughs> right? So like the subtitles are always weird. But anyway, that's where we've seen Ichutasa before. Okay. Um, and then we learn that he's an assassin for this very expensive and legendary group called the Night Wind, which we I don't think have ever heard from before in Star Wars canon. And uh, Fennec sends him into the Rancor Pit, which we all know is empty unless we watched Bad Batch and we might assume that there might be a baby Rancor in there, but then not enough people watch Bad Batch. And he quickly reveals that the mayor sent him. And we cut to the chapter two title card, The Tribes of Tatooine. Uh, I think this one is very obvious. It's talking about the Tuscans, right? Like, is there any dual meaning here? I always like to ask that. I I definitely think so. I think it's talking about the underworld as much of that as well, especially when you look at, um, I think the flashbacks are giving, and we could talk about it later with the Pikes, but the flashbacks are actually laying much more groundwork for Boba Fett taking over than maybe we would have thought possible. And, and maybe he's looking at it as that all of these underworlds are tribes, but that interplay between the Tuscans and the Pikes really added that second layer of meaning for me to want to apply it to all of the underworld factions. Hmm. Okay. Uh, after the title card, the group make their way to Masaspa City Hall and they get a lot of stares from some Trandoshans specifically as they're walking through town. And uh, I thought this was weird my first viewing. And then I remembered that in the first episode, 88 said that Doc Strassi, is, who appeared in that episode, is the leader of that Trandoshan family, uh, protectors of the city center and its business territories. So that is that, is that Trandoshan family, which might also be another tribe of Tatooine. Uh, the uh, the major domo tries to convince them that the mayor is busy for the rest of the week. He doesn't have time to see them, but that doesn't stop them from barging into his office. And here we get the Athorian mayor, Mok Shais, I think. Um, and he's played by Robert Rodriguez because why let some actor get a payday and resume being in a Star Wars movie when you're a big powerful director producer who can cameo in every episode or maybe it was covid and they were like ah we can't bring another person on set <laughs> okay fair enough well, why bring logic into this brian but i don't know it, it does annoy me that he like wants to do everything <laughs> i can tell it seems like a theme through this yeah through this yeah yeah I used to be a big Robert Rodriguez fan back in the day. And I mean, I'm guessing like many people <laughs> kind of uh, d didn't like his work in recent years. And uh, the fact that he tries to do everything at first felt so charming and indie. And to me now feels like we end up getting worse products because of it. But uh, more on that later. Uh, so, so the mayor signals one of his guards to take out the Nightwind assassin, gives him a reward for his capture, and Fett threatens the mayor. The mayor insists that he has no motive in sending the Nightwind. It wasn't him. And of course, Boba doesn't believe him. W what do you guys think is going on here? Because why would the Nightwind assassin 
say at, at a moment where he thinks he's going to be killed by a rancor that it, the mayor was the person who sent him if it wasn't the mayor any theories direction i mean like maybe he got paid to add that extra layer of intrigue to everything from his actual employer brad do you have any theories I mean, the only uh, question I have is, why is being killed by a Rancor so much more terrifying than having your head chopped off? That's a, good, that, that, that's a very good point. I mean, one seems, I guess, maybe a little bit more uncomfortable for a little bit, because, like, your head's not immediately, you know, chopped off, thus killing you right away. But, like, it's not like the Rancor slowly digests you over thousands of years like the Sarlacc does, so... Yeah. You know, I have an answer for that. Okay. I think the answer is that he thinks that when they have the blade up against his neck, he doesn't think they're going to do it. But when he gets dropped into the Rancor pit, he knows that they can't stop the Rancor. Right? Yeah, like, I guess that's fair. Yeah, so that that would be my argument there. But it, that, that is a good point, Brad. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, I'm not sure uh, about the uh, yeah the admission here. I wonder if the mayor and Garza are working together for the huts in some way. Because, like, you know, remember last week's episode, they immediately got uh, surrounded by the Nightwind's assassins right when they were leaving Garza's sanctuary. It it seems suspicious to me. And it seems like she's up to something. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, I think she definitely is. Yeah. So... He tells Fett, running a family is harder than bounty hunting, and he sends him to the sanctuary to see what he means. What does he mean? Well, I, I Do you think, think this is just like him insulting, you know, he, him not taking him as a leader seriously? He just thinks of him as a bounty hunter? Yeah, I think that's very much what he meant there, and uh, sending him to the sanctuary is like, hey, if, you know, go over there and and she'll she'll let you in on that secret okay so he does go over there and he learns that the twins have laid claim to their late cousin's bequest and fett says that the twins are preoccupied with their debauchery on hutta to be there but just as he says that we hear the drums and two huts are carried by many servants down the street while a servant in the front of the procession bangs the drum. And by the way, this, this is a moment that got me out of my seat and cheer because I, I never imagined I was going to see one hut, never mind two huts in the show. And also they're being carried by like all these, ser- how are these servants? Like not like their backs broken. Like they they're, like the thing is aliens. bending. Yeah. What did you guys think of this moment? I did love that when they're standing still so that the huts can have this conversation with Boba Fett, that they're all kind of like still shifting because it's so heavy. Like they didn't just go do the lazy route of like just standing there firmly being able to hold it. It's clearly a lot of work for them. Um, but yeah, these, I mean, these huts are obviously, you know, very snobby um, and just as entitled as Jabba. And there's almost, I feel like there's probably maybe a little bit of an incestuous vibe there, just the way that they're laying on each other on that platform, uh, almost like a, um, you know, a Game of Thrones kind of uh, vibe there, I guess. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and I, and one of the things I was actually really pleased with 
uh, during this sequence too, is because my first question immediately was, why don't you just shoot them right there? Like they're not going to do anything about it. And then Fennec has the line that immediately wipes away that question, which is they have to ask permission, you know, to, to kill them. So, well, who do they have to ask permission to kill them from? Well, I think the idea is the huts, even the huts of, uh, like the huts on Nalhutta are well connected enough that if you kill a hut without permission, they're going to send everything they have after you. Fair enough. So yeah, it's like killing someone in a big mob group, right? Like, yeah, like gonna... they're going to start a war immediately. Fair enough. Okay, I got to ask you, Brian, about the Star Wars canon here. Are these huts anybody that we've seen before? We've not seen them before, but I think there's some clues as to who they might be related to. Um, if you remember Zero the Hut, the very Truman Capote-like hut that had some play in the first few seasons of Clone Wars, he was very purplish and he ha- had facial tattoos and referred to Jabba specifically as his nephew. And J- the twins are referred to here as Jabba's cousins, which means that he could either be their uncle or even their parent. Uh, and the, the, the more male of the twins has facial tattoos, like not like Zero the Hut, but um, uh, not design wise but he has facial tattoos and they both share that and the sister is colored very much like i would imagine a live action version of zero the hut to be colored uh so i think that there's every chance that that maybe we've got a zero zero the hut connection there the the other thing i was wondering while i was watching this is it incestuous or like are they wrapping themselves around each other or are they like conjoined twins so i as far as i can remember in the legendary canon and i don't think anything has contradicted it huts are like asexual and they just sort of jabba's lechery is more of a show and maybe he just likes humanoid creatures but they reproduce by you know, splitting off pieces of themselves or, or through asexual reproduction. Uh, so I, I, I don't know what incest means to a species that, that, that reproduces like that. Gross. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they claim Jabba's king- kingdom and show documentation, but Fett is like, nope. And, uh, I love that, uh, the big, the brother there of the, that the hut duo is he's like holding a white rat creature and wiping his, the sweat off his head with the, the rat. I don't know. I thought that was a, so a, I think, I think that's a hoojib. A hoojib. What, what it's is got a, the a, little a, what, antenna. What so a, a hoojib. Um, so back in the, early 80s Walt Simonson uh you know like yes that Walt Simon Walt Simonson when he was drawing the Star Wars comic and David Michelini was writing it there was a story arc uh about um the rebels seeking a a base where they needed to go and actually I think it was between Empire and, and Jedi um they were looking for another base because they'd lost Hoth and the place they found 
was this planet infested with these creatures called hujibs, and they look like these little white rabbit uh, rat sort of creatures. And they have the little dangly thing, like just like this one had. Turns out they didn't make really good partners uh, to coexist for a rebel base because they kept eating all their power crystals and things. Uh, it got to be kind of a big deal because they actually took it out of the comic and then adapted it into kids' books. I first heard about Hujibs because I had a, a book on tape called Planet of the Hujibs, and it was like Chewie trying to deal with these Hujibs and communicating with them and whatnot. Kevin Scott brought them back into canon in a Star Wars adventure and actually had Han and, and Chewie deliver a Hujib to Jabba as a present in the past. Uh, so you've got that Jabba the Hutt and the Hutt connection, and so I... I feel like that was very much a hujib that he was using as a sweat rag. Brian, I'm glad you're here. That 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 was just fantastic. That whole that whole bit. But that's, do, do, do you that's think why the, you had me here. Yeah, do you think the hujib is to wipe his sweat or do you like at first it looked like it was going to be like, you know, those those things that uh Jabba eats like those liter, uh, those um the gorgs. Gorgs. Do you think it's to eat or do you think it's just to wipe his sweat? I, the second time I watched it, like he exclusively uses him as a sweat rag and it doesn't look like he's eating him, um, which makes it funnier, though. Right. Like, I'm just going to use this little rat rabbit creature like a like a sweat rag is funny to me. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Um, OK, so the question is, where were the huts all these years while Bib Fortuna was on the throne? Any theories? Um, probably arguing with everyone on Nelhutta about how best to fill that power void, or maybe Jabba left instructions that Bib Fortuna would leave that, or maybe uh, there's something to what Boba Fett had to say, where they were controlling Bib Fortuna, but no, maybe people didn't quite realize it, and when Bib Fortuna turned up dead, that's when they decided to show up and exert their control uh in 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 person yeah that's probably most likely i would think okay so at this point a huge black-haired wookie with golden armor and a huge rifle comes out to show like as a show of force and i think if you are a fan of star wars comic books you would recognize him who is this this is black Kersantan. uh he is a bounty hunter that worked for Jabba alongside Boba Fett in the time uh, before and during uh, A New Hope and Empire. And Jabba loaned Black Kersantan and Boba Fett to Darth Vader right after the events of A New Hope when Vader was both looking for evidence of um, who who uh, the young rebel who destroyed the Death Star was and looking for his secret army that he wanted to build as a way to fight against uh, Palpatine and his machinations. Black Kersantan got the job of going and finding that, and that led Vader down that path that led to Dr. Afra. and Black Kersantan became a really popular ally of Dr. Afra, Afra's over the course of the years, and apparently he's gone back into the service of the Huts. Boba Fett at that point actually went and discovered the identity of Luke Skywalker and was the one who delivered to Vader that name for the first time. 
uh, and that, that was so cool. Comics. Yeah, it was. It really was. And Black Chrysanthemum was a gladiator as well. That's how he got his start into bounty hunting, and that's why Boba Fett has those remarks about like uh, about gladiator gladiator sports and whatnot in this episode. It was a really. It wasn't just that it was a cameo. It was like a deep cut, really understanding the character in a way that wasn't uh, overly uh, apparent if you didn't know the history. Yeah, it doesn't take you out of the scene at all. It doesn't like it isn't like, oh, this is a character I don't know from some, you know, one of the expanded things. It just felt like it could have this could have been the first appearance of the character and he has a backstory. That's what it felt like. Um you mentioned Dr. Afra and in, on Slash Film, I, we have an article with someone theorizing with the appearance of what she called Black K in in this uh, this episode. Do you think we'll see the Doc appear in the Book of Boba Fett? Lord, I hope so. I just want more Dr. Afra. Yeah, I don't, I don't I don't know how she'd fit in with like syndicates and stuff though. she's she i mean that's her comic right now is basically just her on the run from them constantly because she keeps double crossing them and stealing (laughs) from them um for those who don't know dr afra she's pretty much like imagine if indiana jones were evil queer and female running around in the star wars universe and that's her so her stealing precious artifacts from underworld lords uh would fit right in with her character I guess that's how, yeah, I guess that could fit. I do want to mention here that I think this character is played by Carrie Jones. I don't know that for sure because there's, in the end credits, there's, uh, during the concept art, they have like the above the line, like co-star credits and there's someone named Carrie Jones there and there's no Wookiee credit in the, in the, you know, the black and white credits at the end of the episode. But I thought it was interesting that this actor, Carrie Jones, is listed in that like co-starring credits, while at the same time, the you know, the Tuscan warrior, uh, Joanna, is is you know she she gets relegated to the the black and white, and she has so much more screen time. But uh, it, I'm sure there's contractual agreements and stuff like that. Anyways, okay, so. That tells them to go back to now Hutta. This upsets the sister. And it almost seems like uh, Fett can understand Huddies, right? Is that what happens here? Because like she's whispering and then he says something like, uh, your sister's right. You're going to have to kill me or something. He, like that. he speaks it as well. He has a couple of lines in Huttees, um that he kind of parrots back to them, I yeah. believe. Yeah, so uh, the brother says that this will be dealt at a later time and to sleep lightly. Brad, what do you? What is this implying? Are they going to try to kill him in his sleep in the back to tank? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Obviously, you know, the the huts aren't too happy about his, his firm stance and defying them. And uh, considering he wants to take over what Jabba the Hut left behind, then yeah, they're going to have some uh, some conflict, I think, here in the near future. Maybe he'll wake up in his back to tank next to one of those space horse heads from from The Last Jedi. Father, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Uh, okay. Why not? We, they steal from the best. Why not more Godfather in Star Wars? We've already got so much. <laughs> it's true. It's true. 
Okay, so Fennec says that they would need to get permission if they wanted to kill the Huts. You've explained that to me already. Uh, I guess my only question left with the Huts is, what happened to Royal, Java's son? Wouldn't he be Ro the one to Rota. take? Rada. Oh, R Rada. Sorry, Rada. No, you're fine. <laughs> Rota, Rada. I don't know. Uh, Stinky. We can go with Stinky. That's what he's canonically called. Um, he's been off the map since the Clone Wars movie. He never appeared in another episode of the Clone Wars TV show. He hasn't been brought up again. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back too. you know, Jabba's son, uh, waging war against his, his, his second cousins, the twins. Sounds like that would be a lot of fun to watch. He was the one in the backpack in that movie, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so back at the palace, Fett is back inside the Bacta tank. And I mentioned last week that we, we, we talked about how the Bacta tank is smaller and horizontal compared to the one we saw Luke Skywalker in in the original trilogy. And someone pointed out online, oh, as Star Wars Explained pointed out, that this is likely due to tech advances in Star Wars Galaxy. Things get better and smaller and by the time that we get to the last Jedi, the back to tank is just like this suit of like water that Finn wears. So I think one of the other really funny things I thought about in that situation though, too, is that the back to tanks in on Hoth, like they're just reusing the back to right. Like they're not draining those tanks. They're just switching people out. And that <laughs> is so extravagant. He's draining the back to every time he uses it. Hey, I mean, he lives in a palace. He has he has the money, right? He has the uh, yeah the resources, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, so the Tuscan warrior teaches Boba how to use the gaffe stick. Uh, there's there's a lot lot more subtlety in like wielding this weapon than I think Fett thinks at first, and a wart emerges from the sand, and a Tuscan shoots it. And I, I just wasn't aware that there were so many creatures below the Tatooine sand, Brian. You wouldn't want to be under either of those suns. Yeah. Oh, I guess, yeah, maybe it's cool. I guess if you dig down far enough, it's cool, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a repulsor train pulls a drive-by, taking out a bunch of Tuscans and even a Bantha. Later that night, they pull the the dead bodies into this like funeral cremation of sorts, like a ceremonial, like uh, burning of the bodies. And Fett convinces the Tuscan chieftain to let him leave in a plan to stop them. So he makes his way to Tashi Station where the Nikto, Nikto uh, bikers are hanging out. And uh, this is a place we ha have but haven't seen in Star Wars canon before. Correct. This is the Tashi station where Luke wanted to pick up some power converters. This is the uh, Star Wars equivalent of a gas station and bar. And uh, there are a couple of really surprising folks in there too. Yeah. Who are they? This is Cammy and Fixer. Uh, these are folks that, that uh, have not been, in Star Wars, they they were almost in Star Wars. They were in a bunch of the deleted scenes with Luke, and uh, in in the 
in A New Hope, but never made it at all. Cammy was the one who nicknamed Luke Wormy, and they were childhood friends of his. And uh, yeah, here they are getting beat up by Nikto and finally made their way into Star Wars. What's what's kind of interesting here is they have recreated the set and, you know, cast people that look like uh, the original actors for a thing that was only in the deleted scenes that only Star Wars super fanatics would recognize. Like, it's not like, you know, Boba Fett's like, I got to go to Toshi Station to get some power. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not mentioned. Like, do they even say Toshi Station? I don't think they do. Yeah. Oh, no, not not in the context of in, in, the, in this episode. I mean, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. It's mentioned, no, obviously, it, in the original trilogy. I'm, yeah. So I'm, um, I, I guess what I'm saying is this is the kind of like fan service that I like where it's a reference, but like it's something that like if you didn't notice it, you didn't notice it, it didn't stop you. It didn't interrupt the story it, like they needed a bar of some kind and they used it as a bar. And it if you are a super fan, it, it rewards you for recognizing it and having a, you know, a ping of nostalgia or recognize you know of connecting the dots yeah brad what did you think of this sequence yeah it's just it's a fun uh little nod to stuff that everyone knows about in star wars if you're a hardcore fan anyway and uh a way to kind of officially make it canon again because even though Kemi and Fixer were, you know, almost in Star Wars, they haven't been canon since Disney took over technically because uh, the only time that they're like officially mentioned in Star Wars was first was in the 1976 novelization of the movie, uh, which, yes, came out before the movie. That's how things used to work before everyone was worried about spoiling movies. <laughs> Um, and then otherwise they just had like brief references here and there and comics and stuff like that. Funnily enough, uh, there is a reference to Cammy in the last Jedi novelization, uh, where Luke Skywalker kind of has a dream thinking, like thinking about if he had gone down the path of just staying on Tatooine and not becoming the Luke Skywalker that we all know where he envisioned himself being married to Cammy and still on Tatooine. But obviously that's something that never made it into the movie. It's just in the novelization. Uh, as a, a dream that he had. So uh, this is kind of the official way to make those characters canon now. I did not know that. I like that a lot. Is this the first time we've seen an arcade game in the Star Wars galaxy? Just like this tabletop, like, I don't even know what kind of game it is, but it's making like arcade game noises. It's Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> I want to say we might have seen some in Bad Batch. It's, it's likely one of the first we've seen in live action it's actually the same uh thing that biggs is playing in the deleted scene where <laughs> cammy and fixer appear uh in, in the original star wars too yeah yeah no they spared no expense in recreating that set that like five people seemed to care about yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so fett enters the tavern takes out all the bikers in a spectacular fashion and i I do got to mention, I, I don't want to take anything away from the the director of this episode, Steph, um, but I'm glad that uh, here's where the Robert Rodriguez thing come, comes back, Brian. I'm glad that this episode decided to hire a second unit director and not have the director direct everything. 
because the action was better in this episode. Not saying that uh, Steph didn't direct the action, but we we have um, the addition of Sam Hargrave, who you know joined in the, the second uh, second season of Mandalorian and uh, had largely the same directors as the first season, and the, the action was so much better. So I, I, I'm glad to see Sam back here because the action in this episode, I think, was just so much better than the first episode of this of this season. So um, Boba brings the speeder bikes back to the Tuscans and presents them as a gift. And uh, I love that the first... The first thing they do is begin scavenging the bikes for parts. Like they don't even look at it as like, ooh, this piece of technology we could use. They're like just trying to take pieces and do what they need to do with it and not understanding that they could, you know, use this technology for themselves. What what did you guys think of this whole this whole part? It made me laugh to see them instantly start like rifling through it because i think that's one of the funniest parts to me in a new hope where luke gets knocked out and they just start going through his glove box <laughs> um like it, it i don't know it, it it felt so in character for the tuscans where they're so wowed by technology but maybe they're not opposed to it in in the way that you know maybe Maybe we assumed they might be. Otherwise, why would they live so such horrible lives out there in the in in the desert? Well, I kind of love too that like they're not necessarily, I guess, adverse to technology as you might assume, but like they just don't have like the experience or knowledge to be able to figure out how to use something like that themselves. So they're just like, fuck it, let's tear it apart. And we'll, they'll probably sell the parts and like that. But then we both had like, no, no, no guys, I can show you how to do it. And they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So if like, we can learn how to use these things, then yeah, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of parallels here to, you know, native Americans in the United States and how we came over and just assumed that they were savages. Like there's this whole conversation later on, because they didn't have their own advanced weaponry and tools and and or system uh, of ownership yeah system ownership and it's kind of it's interesting later on how like you know two sides of a a story you can you could just assume that there are these uh uncivilized beings but when you see the other side of it it's just like oh no they just they just have like different ways of doing things and they didn't they don't know how to employ tool tools of this technological nature they that they don't even realize that they could <laughs> so and you know in fairness to them by the time they get to it the jawas have probably already stripped it yeah true true enough um Brad, i gotta ask you i i loved i absolutely loved this whole sequence here where fett is teaching the raiders how to to, to, to ride the speeder bikes. I, I feel like you would have dug this whole sequence. Oh yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's a funny little sequence too. Um, you feel sorry for the guy who has to be the one to, to learn to jump from speeder bike <laughs> to speeder bike. Uh, does, does not look fun, but uh, yeah. That's, uh, that's, especially that's, the time that he like misses and then he gets run over by another per, uh, Raider in a speeder. Bike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun sequence. I, I always enjoy when like you can organically bring comedy into star Wars and not have it be, you know, something completely stupid. So yeah, this, this was a fun sequence. Yeah. Uh, so the repulsor train returns and Boba Fett's plan is put into motion and I'm not going to go beat by beat through this because it's just a delightful action sequence. But I do want to say that it's like so 
well, I guess, storyboarded in a way that like it just is very easy to follow what is going on. And uh, I guess the only thing I had to say is why do so many Banthas got to die in this? So stop killing the Banthas, guys. <laughs> I want to point out one one moment of homage it felt like when the droid was switching the engine which is i mean the train is basically just a pod racer engine and a whole bunch of cabooses um but the 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 visual language the cinematic language is so much the same sort of stuff george lucas was doing to make us think that like anakin was actually doing something with his pod even though he was just flipping switches um it's just really good filmmaking agreed and I love that droid too. It like yeah. has like multiple arms and then when it gets thrown out later, it like walks like a spider creature. And um, I also enjoyed that, that like wide shot that it showed while the, the train was like plowing through the desert and there was like just herds of banthas in, in it, the sands. It reminded me of Jim Jarmusch's dead man. Totally. Totally. I, um, Especially like when Crispin Glover is on the train with Johnny Depp and he's like, they're shooting Buffalo. And it's just like everybody in the train just starts shooting at whatever is passing by. And, and you know, we know that's something that happened to indigenous folks all the time in the railroad in the old West. But I don't know, anytime you can connect in, at least in my head, a Jim Jarmusch movie to Star Wars, it makes me smile. <laughs> Brad, do you have anything to say about this whole train action sequence? Uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a solid sequence. You know, um, I, I think that, uh, Lucasfilm and Marvel have both kind of been leaning into this action sequence, kind of action sequence in their TV shows. I mean, we had a similar sequence in <laughs> the Mandalorian. Uh, we had another one on semi trucks in the Falcon, and the winter soldier. So I think my only concern is maybe, uh, repeating this old West trope of, a you know, some kind of train robbery, but if you can do it well, why not? Hey, maybe it just makes sense if you have like you know one of those stagecraft volumes. All you need is like the top of the the train, and you just surround it with the thing. And <laughs> I, I, I'm although, guessing that although that's... Falcon and the Winter Soldier didn't actually use stagecraft. Oh, for, yeah. for, for their uh, semi chase sequence. Yeah, how they made that was amazing. Yeah. If you watch that uh, Avengers Assembled up or what, is that what it's called? Avengers. It's, it's, it's or... just called it's just called Assembled, and assembled. then yeah, whatever the show is they're focusing on. Yeah. Okay, so the repulsor train crashes and Fett is left to interrogate the Pikes. And I got to ask you, Brian, who are the Pikes? So the Pike Syndicate really controls the flow of spice in the galaxy, spice being the illicit substance that gets mined in the spice mines of Kessel. Um, we saw Pikes in the Clone Wars. They were part of Maul's Shadows, uh, Shadow Collective, which helped him and Death Watch take back over Mandalore from the Duchess Satine Kreese, who is um, Bo-Katan's sister. Uh, and we saw them again in Solo. Uh, that was their first time in live action in Solo, where they had the mask, but they weren't unmasked. This is actually the first time we've seen them without their masks in live action. And they do look a little bit different than they do in the Clone Wars. They had much more pronounced faces. They have much smaller faces in in the animation, but uh, they are some of the biggest players in the underworld, and if you want the illegal drug of spice, uh, then you've got to go through them. What, what was the role in Solo? I don't recall. 
So uh, Solo, it was uh, uh, Tolsite, Quay Tolsite, the guy that, that lets them in who Kira offered Han and Chewie as a gift to. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and she used uh, Terrace Kasi to kill him with his own, like, key. Okay, so here again, it turns out they're transporting spice from Kessel and thought the Tuscans were uncivilized and were just trying to protect their root, is what they say. Um, Fett tries to tell them that they, or doesn't try, he tells them that they must pay a toll if they want to pass through the Dune Sea anytime in the future. He sends them on foot through the desert with the protection of the Tuscans and with some black melons to, uh, to have them survive. And back at camp, the chief explains to Fett that there are too many, that there are many different Tuscan tribes. Since the oceans dried up, they have stayed hidden because off-worlders have tech they don't. Fett says they now ha also have the machines that the off-worlders had. So he's, he's trying to teach them uh, he, he's trying to, you know, give them more power by giving them not only access to these tools, but uh, knowledge and skills on how to, to use them. Uh, the, the chief offers Bubba a gift, a small lizard in a small wooden cage. And I just love how Fett, like, opens it up and he's, it's kind of like that the person that gets the gift that he doesn't know what to do, like, like someone's giving him a gift and it could be a joke but he's like trying to be nice about it not understanding what it's for before the lizard jumped into his nose brad what did you think of this whole this whole sequence uh yeah it's an interesting spin on the you know uh trope i guess among you know westerns where uh you have know, native american tribes giving uh, other people like ayahuasca and things like that so that they have these wild visions and that's basically what this scene leads to is something that puts boba fett on uh kind of a, a path to discovering something about him himself and like what he needs to do next yeah like a vision quest of sorts but i like how it's weird in star wars and uh okay so boba goes on a vision quest he's seen walking through the desert and we see flashes of him with and without his armor Brian, what do you think this means? Um, I mean, I think it's it's him really finding himself. I thought that this actually started to explain some of his character change. Um, I also really liked um, getting to the core of his character where he's just a little boy watching his dad take off, um, which I thought was a really powerful moment. I really also loved how they put that together. It reminded me very much of that episode of Tales from the Crypt that Humphrey Bogart was in. Um, I don't think I've seen that. Oh, it's 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 really terrific, but it was very much those sorts of sleight of hand tricks where they could put Humphrey Bogart in because it was a first person uh, point of view. So it was all very much reflections and things like that. Yeah, and I think uh, both... Uh, Daniel Logan and a new body double were used to create that. So it's kind of cool. So I'm guessing the, you know, the reflection is Daniel Logan in the body from behind is the stunt double. I'm guessing, but yeah, um, that, that would be my guess. Yeah. And also while he's walking to the sand, this is where things become a little strange. The sand kind of turns into like this body of water 
And in the distance, we'd see these two leafless trees in a thunderstorm. And I got to admit, at first, I thought that the sand turning into a sea kind of was going to represent the dune sea. But on my second viewing, it occurred to me they uh, probably what you were thinking, Brian, that these it's the oceans of Camino that's trying to kind of imitate. So what do the trees yeah. represent? Uh, I mean, the tr- trees represent, I mean, going back into m- mythology to the start, it's, it's life and that source of life. And it's, um, the, at the center of the desert, giving a piece of its life to Boba for his next, you know, phase of his journey, which is why he takes that branch and, and gets to do what, what he gets to do with it. And also trees, uh, s- somewhat, uh, represent like a family, a family tree. And there, there's stuff to be done there too. I'm, I'm guessing. So he, he walks on the water to the tree and we see these red eyes glowing from the branches. Brad, do you have any theories on what the red eyes are? Uh, I mean, it seems like it's supposed to be Jawas, but, and like, I wasn't sure based on the show, but then the concept art, seems to make it more clear that it is Jawas, but in the concept art, the eyes are like on the ground around the tree, but here the eyes are, it looks like they're coming from as if the tree, like the branches as if the Jawas are in the tree. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure uh, what, what that that's all about. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously he got out of the Sarlacc pit and the Jawas stole his armor. Right. So there's that relation. Why would the Jawas be in the tree if the tree represents maybe his family tree? I don't know. Maybe. I think it's the armor. The Jawas took his armor. Took his armor. And okay. that's a sound. That's a sound he heard in the dark. Um, and that's how it connects to the family tree because that armor is his is his family right. It's the lineage. Yeah. Okay, so the limbs of the big tree surround him, and we see flashes of him being in the Sarlacc pit, and he grabs one of the branches, and uh, that's when we see the Geonosian uh, part that you mentioned earlier. And Boba breaks free from the pit, breaking the branch off the tree. And I want to mention that this episode is so beautifully shot, and I think now would probably be a good time to mention that the cinematographer on this episode was Dean Cundry, Cundy, sorry, Dean Cundy, uh, who is now 75 years old, still working. I don't know if I'd be working if I was 75 years old. He's best known for working with Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, John Carpenter on films such as Halloween, the Back to the Future trilogy, Escape from New York, Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13. He, he just did a couple films, Brian, only a few. And... <laughs> kidding and uh so never heard of any of those yeah he hasn't done a lot of tv he's only done like a handful of tv shows so it's interesting that he's working here he has the interest in working in star wars maybe he wanted to try his hands at this new technology that's kind of what i was thinking if you look at like the late careers of of really great cinematographers are always really weird sometimes like it was oswald morris who was like one of the legendary cinematographers and his last two movies were like muppet movies and it was just like he wanted the challenge of how to you know how do you light 
a stage designed for Muppets and humans. And, and that was really interesting to him. So I, it wouldn't be surprising if he was like, oh, I'll do this just to see how the technology works. But Lucasfilm tends to do that too. I mean, we had um, a couple of episodes of the Clone Wars directed by Walter Murch, who has never you know directed animation prior <laughs> or since. Um, you know, things like that. Like Lucasfilm allows people to play with the technology in ways that maybe would get people out of their comfort zone from their normal jobs. Yeah. And as a side note here, as a fan of the Back to the Future trilogy, I want to mention then Back to the Future 3, Doc and Marty get a photo in front of the clock tower and the person taking the photo is the director of photography, Dean Cundy. So it's a good, good cameo there. Also kind of a uh, interesting correlation since we have that train chase here and the uh, the robot, um, it, uh, I'm pretty sure he ignites that engine three times before the train overloads <laughs> and eventually ends up exploding. So another little Back to the Future 3 reference maybe? I, I somehow doubt that one. But <laughs> okay, so Fett returns to the Tuscan camp where the lizard jumps out of his nose, returning to the basket. And Fett mentions that he thought the lizard was part of the dream, which I think is funny. So uh, he, in the next scene, he's in a tent and he's ceremonially wrapped with fabric, forming his new, his new costume, his new identity, his new armor. And I, the only thing that I can kind of think of this scene is, well, first of all, it's cool. Uh, second of all, the juxtaposition of what we saw last week with uh, Boba Fett getting armored up by those droids and how, like, this is kind of like the same thing but different. But do you, do, what do you guys think is going on here with his new his new outfit? Like, what, what are they trying to do here? It, it reminded me a little bit of Lawrence of Arabia, too. Oh yeah. There's a bunch of Lawrence and of Arabia in this episode, actually. Yeah. Um, it, it felt like they were giving him the honor of garb that would make sense rather than just the tatters of his old armor, which I thought had some really nice touches as well. You could see where the undersuit was sort of stained the, the paint colors of his armor and things like that in some of the shots. Um, but this is them, you know, fully bringing him in and making him one and bringing his costume much closer to both his current Boba Fett costume and the costume that we see him show up on Tython in. It's also interesting, though, that they don't give him like a Tusken Raider mask or like he's still a unique like he, he's not he is one of them, but he isn't one of them. He has his own identity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. What do you make of that? Like, are, are the masks only for Tuscan born? That would make sense. I mean, it's kind of a similar thing too, where like, you know, in stories before where you've had a native American tribe that kind of takes in, you know, a, a white settler or something like that. And, you know, they end up giving them a name and kind of inducting them as like one of their own, but they're not necessarily wearing like the same, the exact same, you know, wardrobe that you would expect of a Native American tribe like that, you know? Yeah. It, it would be like Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves coming out with like a headdress. Right. 
Fair enough. Um, okay, so the Tuscan kid brings him over to this crafting area built from scavenged pieces. And I got to mention that there's this Ralph McQuarrie co- a piece of concept art from, I think it's A New Hope, and it it looks exactly like this piece of concept art, that like whole crafting area. So I'll link that in the show notes. But um, so the craftsman there teaches Boba to use some of the woodworking tools on the branch to turn it into this intricately carved uh, stick of his own. So now he has his own gaffy stick. And I love I love this whole sequence. So what did you guys think of uh, him finally creating his own stick? Yeah, it's a very cool, you know, rite of passage sequence that even for their shows that they find him, you know, worthy of being among them for what he's done, how he's helped them, um, showing his, you know, endurance and, and strength and, and whatnot. So it's it was, you know, much in the same vein of how, you know, uh, a Jedi, you know, isn't really a Jedi until they've built their own lightsaber kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so they gather around a fire and they do this dance with the gaffy sticks. And I, it occurred to me earlier on in this episode that like when it was just Fett and the Tusken warrior and they were kind of like doing those moves, it almost seemed to, it, it occurred to me that it like, I, I'm sorry for this comparison because I, I just came off watching Cobra Kai season four over the weekend. Uh, but it, it almost reminded me of like the kata that uh, Miyagi and <laughs> Daniel do. Like it, it's very, it's not like they're just learning to use these weapons for weapon's sake. It seems almost like a spiritual kind of thing. I, I read it very much like a haka dance. Like that, you know, like Tim Morrison has done, you know, uh, sort of culturally from that region of the world. Um, and as a Maori, and there's definitely some Pacific Islander and, and Pacific Island culture in the Tuscans just sort of baked in, you know, the gaffy sticks were basically taken from ceremonial weapons that you can find on Fiji and things like that. And that's kind of what I read out of it, but, um, that's all are valid. Yeah, that's definitely valid. Uh, so I guess uh, any final thoughts on this episode before we get into speculation? I guess I think if I had one overall like kind of criticism or, or wish for the show is that I wish that it would take the lost route a little bit more by going back and forth between flashbacks and present day to create more of like a link between the storytelling as opposed to having them be so separate you know like one of the things i loved about loss is how what happened in the flashbacks you know informed what was happening on the island and tied into the larger theme of the episode and i feel like maybe maybe that's something that we're like leading to eventually but i just don't feel like that's something that's happened yet it feels like two separate stories being told so far i feel like they're gonna merge together later if that makes sense yeah we, I talked about that a little earlier, but I also think that this has much less runway than Lost. So when looked at it, I think when I think this show is going to feel a lot different when you binge all six episodes at once. And I think it might give you that feeling where Lost had to stand alone week to week much more in, in that case, episode to episode. This doesn't because they know it's just us watching it. Everybody else is going to binge it four weeks from now. 
and they're going to find that feeling to it. Fair enough. Um, I, I guess my, I, I see that criticism and I, I understand that criticism and it seems like a lot of people are having that criticism, which I suggested like, why not put the two Tuscan things into the first episode? I guess there's going to be more of this Tuscan story. So you can't just cut to the second episode. Um, the, I guess my problem with even the Mandalorian episodes and this series, both of which were written by John Favreau, some of which was written in story by Dave Filoni is I feel like the story, like the, the way those guys write TV are very episodic. And it's not that, um, I guess in the first season of Mandalorian, it was kind of like adventure of the week and it didn't move the story forward much. This is not that. So I can't complain it to be that because there's obviously forward momentum being had, but I feel like by the end of the episode, there isn't like a big cliffhanger that makes me want to see the next thing. Do you know what I mean? Like there's forward momentum and growth in like what Boba Fett is doing in the Tusken Raiders, but like it's, I don't know what's coming next. I don't know what to be excited about. The thing that's more exciting to me is, is seeing the landscape of Tatooine and the underworld there. And I mean, honestly, the thing I wanted more than anything when this episode was over, wasn't more Tuscan stuff. Wasn't more Boba Fett. It was like, what are the twins in black Kersantan going to do? Cause I'd almost rather have a show about them at this point. <laughs> well, maybe you'll get that because the Mandalorian Fingers versus, crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Brad, do you have anything else left to say about that? No, that's pretty much it. You know, I'm, I'm on board, you know, simply as a star Wars fan, who's curious. Um, I'm just hoping and trusting, you know, in Favreau and Filoni that the, they've got a compelling story that's, you know, worth telling and, you know, won't be, you know, a, a poor excuse for bringing Boba Fett back. I, I do want to conclude this in saying I really like this episode. This I think was one of my one of the my favorite of the Star Wars live action TV show episodes so far, including all the Mandalorian. But it doesn't like I said, it doesn't excite me to see the next one. Like it, it almost seems like a singular story. Like this could have been a like a, like the two episodes together could have like been some kind of movie if it had more of an arc. Um, but okay, let's get into speculation. Uh, I guess my first question is, do you, do you think that the pikes are going to come into play in the future storyline? Cause you know, they come into play in the Tuscan era storyline and we know that the pikes have, you know, obviously they have connections to syndicate. Like they were part of, uh, Shadow Syndicate with Darth the Shadow Collective, yeah. yeah, Shadow Collective, and possibly me. Were they part of Crimson Dawn? Do we know if they were? Well, or Crimson Dawn was a a separate organization inside the Shadow Collective, and um, Maul sort of took them over on his own. You remember in Solo, Dryden Voss said the reason they can't go and steal something from them is because they had a shaky uh, shaky truce with the Pike syndicate and he didn't want to disrupt that. And that was when Han and, and Beckett suggested that, you know, they could go 
and no one would know that they were associated with Crimson Dawn because they're independent operators. And he said, okay, that'll work. That's fine. Because they were distinctly separate. But I, Oh, go ahead. So do you think that the Pikes are going to come into play in this uh, gangster storyline? Yeah, I think, I really think the stuff that Boba Fett is doing in the past on Tatooine with, with these tribes is laying the groundwork to make it so that it doesn't matter what the external uh, underworld forces on Tatooine want. A lot of those uh, underground ones are those ones that are native to Tatooine, whether that's the Tuscans, whether that's the Pikes and their their spice route. They're all going to owe something to Boba Fett, and so his claim to to Jabba's throne is going to be a lot stronger than people realize, other than him just showing up and killing Bib Fortuna. Will will we see what the Tuscans look like under their helmets? H- have we seen that before? I don't think we have. No, I don't think we will. By the way, th- there's this uh, crazy theory going on online that I want to debunk here that uh, people are theorizing that the young Tuscan that we see uh, Fett kind of mentoring or friends with in the Tuscan scenes, that that's going to end up being the the biker that we've seen in the commercials, the biker chick that we've seen in the commercials. The, the young Tuscan in the audio description is clearly identified as a male. So that is, that is not true. And that would honestly uh, really bother me if it was revealed that a Tuscan was a white human under the mask. This is the same internet speculation that told us in 1999 that Kitster would turn into Boba Fett. Oh God. Oh boy. Uh, um, what, do, what do you guys think is going to happen with the huts? I don't know. I think it's too early to really make any, you know, kind of guess about where that story is heading other than just the typical crime family conflict, you know, story we've seen play out in mob movies and whatnot before. So yeah, I don't know. Brian, do you have any predictions? Because I feel like there's no questions here. Well, That's the other I, problem with this. Like, I don't have any questions of like what, what I don't. It's not that I don't have any questions. I just don't have any. There's no setup into where this is going. I think the predictions I have are going to be mainly in the flashback stuff, which is what we're getting much more meat on the bones for. I think we're going to see him rescue Fennec. I think we're going to see him get his ship. Um which they may or may not refer to as the Slave One. Um, We're going to see him head off toward Tython. As far as what's going on in the next chapter in the galaxy, as far as Tatooine and the twins and Black or Santan, I I don't think they've given us enough to speculate about. I think Brad's right. It's like, we're just going to get a generic mobster movie until they give us something that's going to indicate higher stakes. Yeah, I think John Favreau might be directing episode three, at least according to IMDb. Which IMDb is never wrong, right, guys? So it's, it's, pro- it's probably true. The Wikipedia of movie information sites. <laughs> um, I did want to bring up one last thing. This is speculation, but this is something that's been reported. So if you if you want to tune out now, because you don't w- w- want to see something that's been reported by like newspapers like the Sun. That could be a spoiler. Tune out now. But I, I honestly don't think it's true. But I'm, I, I want to bring it up to to get you get uh, 
your feelings on this. So this past week, the newspaper The Sun reported that Harrison Ford spent three days on set filming an appearance. He's going to be digitally de-aged and appears on Solo in the series. We should say that The Sun is, at best, we could call him not reliable at all, right? <laughs> um, so just because they're a newspaper doesn't mean anything. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on this? Um, that's interesting. Um, I do like the idea of seeing some kind of expansion of the relationship or I guess rivalry between Boba Fett and Han Solo. And so if there's something interesting to be done there, I'm not opposed to it. But I also just like, man, I don't know if it's something, if it can be something significant enough to like warrant being all excited about because I can't imagine Harrison Ford is super keen on coming back as Han Solo unless, you know, the price is right. Everyone has their price, but you know, he wanted to be killed off as Han Solo since the original trilogy. It finally happened in force awakens. And so I feel like if it pops up, like it has to be just like a brief, you know, thing only. Uh, and won't, I can't imagine it would lead to anything bigger, like a season two, uh, with a lot of flashbacks involving, you know, young Han Solo and Boba Fett or anything like that. The thing for me is I go back to remember when we were doing this for season two of The Mandalorian and it was like Luke is going to be the, the Jedi who shows up to get Grogu. Like we felt pretty confident about that, I feel like, because story wise and time wise, those things lined up. I can't think of anything story-wise that would line up with Han Solo running into Boba Fett on Tatooine in this era of the timeline. Like at this point, he's a dad uh, and he's the, the devoted husband of a woman who's putting the Republic back together. Like, it, it and, and he's working on that too, right? Like, Last shot might have happened in this era, and it was a big deal for him to like take off. Um, Unless it has something yeah. to do with them potentially tying in Crimson Dawn, and they figure yeah. out a way to bring him and Kira back together briefly for whatever reason. But that's a lot of steps removed. Like, if we, I think we would have heard more rumors about Kira showing back up than we would have about Han Solo. Yeah. Well, there was that whole rumor. There was like a whole leaked report about what was going to happen this season on Book of Boba Fett. And so far, the only thing that's shown up out of that leaked report, it was like this long description, was the the Wookiee character. So they got that. But that could have been a guest. That could have been someone seeing him on set. You know, that could have been, you know, whatnot. You'd think that if that leaked report was real at all. It would have mentioned Tuscan Raiders, which it really didn't. It would have mentioned Huts, which it didn't. <laughs> Probably came from the same place that said that pa- Pedro Pascal was really disappointed that his face uh, wasn't seen enough and walked off the set. And... Okay, so so if I think we all are not betting on Han Solo appearing, the the, the thing is like. If you had asked me after Force Awakens, like it seemed to me that Harrison Ford was over Star Wars at Return of the Jedi. He wanted his character to be killed off. It didn't happen. He came back for Force Awakens just to have that happen. And if you had asked me at that moment in time, would Harrison Ford be willing to come back to Star Wars? I would have told you no. But he did come back for 
Rise of Skywalker. I I kind of got the impression though that that was J.J. Abrams going back to him hat in hand and saying, "Listen, Carrie Fisher's dead, and I'm kind of screwed here, yeah. and I yeah. need you for this scene." Yeah, no, that, that's very true. Very true. Okay, I I think we've we've gone through everything we want to talk about again. We've gone almost like the three of this episode. So hopefully you have enjoyed this. You can read Ryan's review on SlashFilm.com. I'll link a ton of our coverage. We have so much coverage from the book of Boba Fett. And we'll put that all in the show notes. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at And please head on over to our Apple podcast page. Write us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.